December 1956. 30-year-old lawyer-turned-revolutionary Fidel Castro was facing death. Just a few days earlier, he and his 81-man army had landed in southern Cuba with the hopes of overthrowing Fulgencio Batista. Instead, they were immediately met by Batista's forces and decimated. Now, Castro's revolutionary army consisted of himself and two other men, and they were taking refuge in a sugarcane field. For days, Castro hid in the dirt while Batista's soldiers prowled the countryside, baying for his blood. At any moment, he knew he could be discovered, and he knew the consequences of discovery. Arrest, torture, execution. Castro had no army. He had no money. Nothing. His only possessions were a tattered olive-green uniform and a rifle. But he had survived prison. He survived exile in Mexico. This was merely a setback. He refused to be defeated now. Castro spent five days on his belly hiding among the sugar cane. When the coast was finally clear, he crawled out of the field with his two comrades and started searching for Batista military outposts to raid. The Cuban Revolution was on. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we'll delve into the lives and minds of some of history's most hated leaders. This season, we're looking at the Marxist-Leninist despots of the 20th century. Last week, we started with Vladimir Lenin himself, the man who made Russia communist and spilt rivers of blood in the process. Today, we're diving into the rise of Cuban dictator Fidel Castro. We'll follow his rise from a privileged childhood in rural Cuba to becoming the leader of a ragtag group of revolutionaries. And we'll explore how, once in power, Castro survived America's Bay of Pigs invasion, only to come out stronger than ever. Next week, we'll look at Castro's close to 50-year reign as the longest-serving non-royal head of state in the 20th century. We'll examine his role in the nearly apocalyptic Cuban Missile Crisis, his battles with the United States, and then we'll explore his exceptionally complicated legacy. Coming up, welcome to Cuba. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Fidel Castro is easily one of the 20th century's most controversial public figures. To many, he was nothing more than a repressive monster. To others, he was a faultless hero who finally ended U.S. hegemony in Cuba. All too often, Castro has been characterized as a typical Marxist-Leninist dictator. But in truth, there was little that was typical about Castro. Perception of Castro is so tied up in modern political debate that it can be nearly impossible to untangle the truth. Much has been written about Castro the dictator and Castro the revolutionary icon. But Castro the man remains something of a mystery. Fidel Alejandro Castro Ruz was born near the town of Biran on August 13, 1926. Located in what was formerly known as the Oriente Province, Biran catered toward Cuba's agricultural industry, and Castro's father, Ángel Castro y Arjiz, helped run it. He owned a large and prosperous sugarcane plantation. So while the children of laborers in Biran had to go around barefoot and hungry, Castro had shoes, plenty to eat, and lots of attention. But despite being a little more spoiled than the other children in town, Castro's parents imbued him with a strong work ethic. And like Vladimir Lenin, he was raised to take education seriously. Castro was given the finest schooling, first with private tutors, and then at various private religious institutions in the city of Santiago de Cuba. Even at this young age, Castro showed tremendous determination and obstinacy. Once when a teacher hit him, Castro hit the teacher back. Then when his father said he would pull him out of school for the outburst, Castro threatened to burn their house down if he wasn't allowed to continue his studies. The elder Castro backed down. Regardless of his combative personality, Castro had an exceptional intellect and impressive memory. And while he didn't always have the highest grades, he did well enough to be accepted into the prestigious Jesuit College of Belen in Havana in 1941. It was during his time at Belen that the 15-year-old Castro found his lifelong idol, José Martí. José Martí was the revolutionary and national hero who had been at the forefront of Cuba's liberation from Spain. A passionate anti-imperialist, Martí's political writings tremendously influenced Castro's own ideology. Martí advocated for guerrilla warfare to overthrow Spanish rule, and he insisted that a military revolution had to coincide with a social revolution. Land redistribution, government-funded education, and racial equality were crucial to transforming Cuba. Castro quickly came to idolize Martí for both his bravery and his vision. But as he got older, he realized that Martí's work to end imperialism in Cuba wasn't finished. Martí had died in 1895, before the United States intervened in the Cuban War for Independence. Though Spain was driven out of Cuba, the United States elbowed its way in and virtually turned the nascent country into a protectorate. Under the Platt Amendment in the Cuban Constitution, the U.S. could intervene militarily whenever it wished. At the same time, the Platt Amendment strengthened the island's ties to American businesses. Unsurprisingly, the U.S. business presence came at the expense of ordinary Cubans. According to journalist and author Volker Skierka, by the time that Fidel Castro was born, 
two-thirds of Cuba's agriculture was in North American ownership. Economically, Cuba was deeply tied to the United States. And although the Platt Amendment was revoked by Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1934, the U.S. continued to interfere with Cuban affairs. The meddling of Washington, the frustration at the limited changes brought by the War of Independence, and the heroic example of Martí all left a deep impression on the young Castro as he headed to university. In 1945, 19-year-old Castro enrolled at Havana University in order to study law. But if he thought his time in law school would consist of quiet study, he was rudely mistaken. Many college campuses are beehives of political activity. But at Havana University, politics had turned deadly. The university was a battleground between various student political organizations. The groups were, in fact, little more than gangs of gunmen. And as Castro quickly discovered, they were used by the political establishment, even the president of Cuba, to carry out assassinations. Castro said that he was fairly ignorant about contemporary politics before he came to Havana University. But like many revolutionaries, once he arrived, he fell right into the radical chaos. Not by joining the violent gangs, nor the Communist Party. Instead, Castro stayed independent. His political philosophy was still heavily influenced by José Martí. But that didn't mean he stayed out of their brawls. He loved getting into fistfights as a means of proving his masculinity and making a name for himself. According to author and journalist Tad Schultz at Havana University, Castro was engaged in creating a personal reputation and myth as rapidly and as dramatically as possible, exhibiting both his flair for the spectacular and his attraction to the limelight. When exactly Castro decided that he would be José Martí's successor is unclear. But at Havana University, he started working toward that goal, whether or not he realized it. And not just by showing off in fistfights. Castro was carving out his own niche amongst Havana's student activists, and he began to speak out against the corrupt Cuban government. His speeches were often unreasonably long, but full of passion and pizzazz. He became popular enough that even newspapers published articles about him. Castro grew increasingly fiery and agitated, though he lacked subtlety. Once at a meeting between students and Cuban President Ramon Grau, Castro suggested simply grabbing the president and throwing him off a balcony. Luckily, a friend convinced him to abandon the idea. By the late 1940s, Castro had joined the Partido Popular Cubano, a nationalist and anti-imperialist political party. In 1950, he finished law school. And for the next few years, he juggled his burgeoning law career with political agitation. By the start of the 1950s, Castro decided that perhaps he should run for public office. And what better time than the upcoming summer elections of 1952? Or so he thought. Unfortunately, Cuba's days of democracy were over. As dictators, listeners will recall, in March 1952, Former President Fulgencio Batista led a military coup and seized power, and all because he was polling in third place. Once in power, Batista canceled elections and made himself dictator. 
Cuba's government became more oppressive and crooked. Anyone who spoke out was arrested, tortured, and killed. Castro was incensed. Not only was this the opposite of what Martí had envisioned for his country, it was ruining Castro's chance to run for office. So, a few days after Batista seized power, Castro declared his intention to fight the new regime. And as he put it, if Batista grabbed power by force, he must be thrown out by force. Batista's coup had turned Castro into a full-time revolutionary committed to overthrowing the new dictator. Within weeks, Castro had organized cells of guerrilla fighters, set up a newspaper, and established an underground radio station. After a little over a year, he had 1,200 men at his command. In keeping with his politics up to this point, Castro's goal was to use his group to free Cuba and implement José Martí-style reforms. He was starting to lean further to the left, but he was not trying to lead a proletarian revolution. In fact, there was no love lost between Castro and the communists at the time. Castro didn't trust the communists because some were linked to Batista. And the communists saw Castro as a maverick who dismissed the core tenets of Marxism-Leninism. But a lack of communist support didn't mean Castro wasn't ready to launch an attack on the Batista regime. In order to topple Batista, Castro decided on a bold, almost insane plan. Seize control of the Moncada barracks in Santiago de Cuba. Castro assumed that once he doled out the fortress's weapons to the masses, they would rise up and overthrow the regime. The storming of the Moncada barracks took place on July 26, 1953. Castro led a revolutionary army of 111 men and two women, armed with 22 caliber hunting rifles and decked out in poorly fitted uniforms. Another 27 or so were also getting ready to ambush the Bayamo barracks, which were further west. Once the first group arrived at the Moncada barracks, the rebels were greeted by 700 professional soldiers. Castro's glorious assault was a complete disaster. The soldiers at Moncada unleashed a withering fusillade and easily routed the revolutionaries. Eight of Castro's men were killed in the fight, but those that were captured instead fared even worse. Batista didn't directly order the prisoners' mutilation, but he gave his men carte blanche to do what they wanted. The Moncada soldiers tortured 61 rebels to death by having their eyes, genitals, and other body parts torn from them. Castro himself escaped and fled to the Sierra Maestra Mountains. Meanwhile, photographs of those mutilated corpses were published in a magazine, shocking the public. It was an appalling loss, but there was an upshot. Many Cubans were horrified and outraged by the Moncada soldiers' brutality. Those killed became martyrs, and support for Castro's cause grew. Unfortunately, Castro didn't have much time to use the momentum, not as a free man anyway. Just five days after the attack, an army patrol located and arrested him. Castro, his brother Raul, and 27 of their rebel compatriots went on trial in September and October 1953. But Castro was far from knocked out. In fact, he turned the trial to his advantage. 
While on the stand, Castro launched into a fiery four-hour speech condemning Batista and ending with his soon-to-be immortal declaration, History will absolve me. Transcripts of the speech were smuggled out of prison and published, raising his prestige even further. Still, it wasn't enough to save him. Castro was sentenced to 15 years in prison. While in prison, Castro managed to keep in touch with revolutionaries on the outside. He would eventually rename his organization the 26th of July Movement. And for around the next year and a half, he focused on reading and plotting the next steps of his revolution. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, Castro got a lucky break. After harshly cracking down on dissidents, Fulgencio Batista was feeling the public pressure. So, in an attempt at good PR, Batista announced a general amnesty for political prisoners. In May 1955, 29-year-old Fidel Castro was released. Still, Castro was convinced that his amnesty wouldn't last. He was sure Batista would sooner or later try to have him killed. So in July, he and his brother exiled themselves to Mexico. Before he left, Castro wrote a letter to a friend in which he proclaimed, If I return, it will be with tyranny beheaded at my feet. Coming up, Castro rebuilds his army and takes the fight to Batista once more. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast and premieres Monday, May 3rd. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now, back to the story. In 1953, Cuban revolutionary Fidel Castro was sentenced to 15 years in prison for attempting to incite a revolution. But only after a year and seven months into his sentence, he was granted clemency. Current dictator Fulgencio Batista was feeling the political pressure after years of violent suppression of dissidents. What he didn't realize was that by freeing Castro, he was sealing his own fate. The 29-year-old Castro was still intent on starting a revolution, but he didn't trust the Batista regime, so he was going to have to do it while in exile. When Castro arrived in Mexico in July 1955, he had nothing, no money, no men. His once 1,200-strong revolutionary army now consisted of just him and his brother Raul. The future of the revolution seemed bleak. But soon after his arrival, Castro made new allies. Most prominent among them was a 27-year-old Argentinian with bad asthma. His name was Ernesto Guevara. 
but his friends called him by an interjection common in Argentina, Che. Che was also in Mexico to lick his wounds. A year earlier, he had witnessed firsthand how the CIA engineered the overthrow of the democratically elected government in Guatemala, all in the name of stopping communism and keeping banana prices low. And although he was not a Cuban nationalist like Castro, the Marxist Che was more than happy to fight against a capitalist despot like Batista. Ian Castro became close friends, and in time, Che's brand of Marxism would have a profound effect on the Cuban Revolution and Castro's own ideology. For now, though, the anti-Batista buddies had to find a way to put ideas into practice. One of the first things they needed to do was raise some cash. So Castro traveled to the U.S. seeking out Cuban exiles who could bankroll his revolution. He managed to raise $9,000, or roughly $88,000 in today's money. Unfortunately, that wasn't going to be enough. So Castro turned to an unusual benefactor, former Cuban president Carlos Prio Socaras, the very man Batista deposed. Prio secured $100,000, worth nearly a million today, with the hope of becoming powerful again once Castro won. Castro wasn't so sure about that, but at least now he had the money he needed to go after Batista. In the fall of 1956, Castro secured a boat, dubbed the Grandmother, and recruited 81 men, arming them with rifles and submachine guns. On November 25th, Castro and his men set sail. After seven clumsy, vomit-strewn days at sea, the grandmother crash-landed in the swamps of Cuba's southern Oriente province. Castro picked the same landing spot where his hero, José Martí, had landed decades earlier during his own revolution. The revolution had come home. Castro's group trudged their way through the heavily forested Sierra Maestra mountain range. On December 5th, a few days after making landfall, an army unit discovered them and opened fire. Several revolutionaries were shot, including Che, who took a bullet to the shoulder. Those who survived scattered into the jungle. Castro and two associates found themselves hiding in a sugarcane field for five days. It seemed as if the revolution was about to end before it even started. But Castro refused to admit defeat. He kept himself motivated and sane by whispering endlessly about his plans for the future of Cuba. Castro later joked, I was commander-in-chief of myself and two others. But after those five long, lonely days, Castro and his men hoped the coast was clear. They came out of hiding. Once more trekking through the mountains, they arrived at the rendezvous, a small farm, on December 16th. Over the next couple of weeks, a few more half-dead stragglers stumbled onto the farm. When his army ballooned to eight, Castro enthusiastically proclaimed, Now we have won the war. The days of tyranny are counted. But despite such enthusiasm, Castro had a slight problem. Batista was going around saying that Castro was dead. That wouldn't do. Castro knew appearances were everything. Sympathizers would give up hope of revolution if they thought he was dead. But if he could show he was still fighting and project confidence in victory, he would inspire others to join his cause 
and also make Batista look like a fool. So, in February 1957, Castro drafted the first manifesto from the Sierra Maestra. The manifesto urged Cubans to fight the regime and disrupt the economy by attacking sugarcane farms. Putting his money where his mouth was, Castro arranged to have his own family's plantation burned to the ground. Coinciding with the publication of the manifesto, a reporter from the New York Times miraculously snuck his way past Batista's patrols and made it to Castro. Castro, always one to recognize the importance of propaganda, leapt at the opportunity to speak to the press. When the Times article was published, the regime naturally refused to believe it, saying it was all lies. But then a photograph showing Castro with the American journalist was also published, proving that Castro was very much alive, and so was his revolution. In a one-two punch, Batista looked like a fool while Castro was hailed a hero. Still, Batista had bigger problems than Castro. With virtually no popular support, much of Batista's power rested on the back of the U.S. So when a group of naval officers in Cienfuegos staged a revolt, unrelated to Castro's revolution, Batista employed American military planes to bomb the city, killing hundreds of innocent civilians. American generals praised Batista, but the U.S. State Department was horrified. Soon there was a feeling among government officials that perhaps it was time for Batista to go. While Batista struggled to keep his head above water, Castro was gaining steam. His guerrilla army, the 26th of July movement, was growing, and they were finally gaining some real victories, including the capture of the El Uvero garrison in late May. Much of Castro's success relied on his ability to win over Cuba's poor. His army redistributed land and livestock after driving out large landowners. In the territory the rebels took over in eastern Cuba, he ordered hospitals, clinics, and schools to be built. But that didn't mean the revolutionaries' hands were free of blood. When Castro's inner circle discovered that a local man had accepted a bribe to lead the guerrillas into an ambush, Castro sentenced the man to death. According to some reports, Che personally shot the man in the head. The move was reckless, and it wasn't isolated. Though Castro was making real headway, many of Batista's other opponents remained suspicious of him. He had a reputation for being boorish and having sudden outbursts of anger. His companions were seen as immature boys. In order to win over these moderates, Castro released a second manifesto in which he made a series of liberal promises. Among the promises were free elections and land redistribution, in which landowners would be fairly compensated. The second manifesto managed to put moderates at ease. But before any of his promises could be fulfilled, Castro still had to defeat Batista's army. And that was no small task. In May 1958, an annoyed Batista launched Operation Fin de Fidel, or End of Fidel. Roughly 10,000 soldiers were tasked to hunt down around 500 rebels. Within a month, the army had Castro hemmed into around a few square miles and nearly out of food and ammunition. But even now, Castro refused to back down. Instead, he launched small-scale ambushes and quick retreats into the jungle. 
the epitome of guerrilla warfare and highly effective. And Castro's men also had a few other unexpected advantages. Though their foe may have seemed insurmountable, there were in fact serious cracks in the Batista army. Two-thirds were raw recruits with low morale. Constant guerrilla fighting convinced them that the rebel force was far larger than it actually was. Even worse, the U.S. finally abandoned Batista. Congress was now controlled by a left-leaning Democratic majority, and they were unwilling to ignore the atrocities committed by Batista. They pulled out all of the state's military aid, leaving the Cuban caudillo dangerously isolated. By August, Fin de Fidel had imploded. With morale and discipline extinguished, the army that had assembled to crush Castro simply packed up and walked home. The whirlwind momentum shift was now firmly with the rebels. In late December, Che and 300 men captured Santa Clara, a large city in the center of Cuba. Batista's men were so dispirited that around 2,500 soldiers surrendered. From then on, more of Batista's soldiers would simply lay down their arms rather than fight. They didn't see the point of fighting for a leader who was rapidly falling from grace. Fidel Castro could taste the victory. He was less than 200 miles from the capital of Havana, and with soldiers waving the white flag, it seemed as if he could easily waltz right in. Waltz right in, Castro did. A fear-stricken Batista saw the writing was on the wall and refused to wait for the rebels to arrive. So on January 1st, 1959, Batista resigned as leader of Cuba. The next morning, he climbed aboard an airplane and flew to the Dominican Republic in exile. Of course, before he left, it was revealed that Batista's government had embezzled or appropriated over $400 million worth of Cuba's gold and dollar reserves, leaving the treasury with some $20 million. But that was a problem for another day. While Batista spent the beginning of 1959 fleeing for his life, Fidel Castro was celebrating with his closest companions and allies. Among those sipping champagne with him was American actor Errol Flynn. By January 3rd, the dust had settled and the revolution was officially victorious. In a speech before 200,000 spectators in Santiago, Castro proclaimed, The revolution begins now. For the first time, the republic will really be entirely free. But Cuba's new leader didn't realize he had one more foe to face the United States of America. Coming up, the U.S. attempts to overthrow Castro at the Bay of Pigs. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker. 
the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. At the beginning of 1959, Cuban dictator Fulgencio Batista hopped on a plane and escaped Havana while Cuban rebels knocked on his door. In doing so, he put 32-year-old Fidel Castro in charge. And in a stirring victory speech, Castro promised, the revolution begins now. The revolution Castro spoke of was a social and economic one. He wanted to increase literacy, establish free public health service, and redistribute land. In making these promises, he assured the people that he had no interest in mingling with dictatorships like the Soviet Union and that the Cuban Revolution was inherently democratic. Castro, like Cuban leaders before him, had to walk a dangerous tightrope. He knew he had to appease his own people by enacting social and economic reform, not to mention live up to the ideals he'd believed and espoused most of his life. However, if he strayed too far to the left, he risked U.S. intervention. So, in those early days, Castro remained a moderate. He took his cues from his idol, José Martí. Martí had advocated for sweeping social and economic reforms, but at a cautious and responsible pace. Castro even visited the United States in April 1959 and assured his American neighbors to the north that his government was not communist. The idea that Castro immediately fell into communism is a common misconception. Rather, his transition into a Marxist-Leninist dictator was a steady process, one that was influenced by Washington's schemes against his regime, his own evolving ideology, and the advocacy of some of his closest associates. While Castro's personal evolution may have been gradual, Many of his allies were committed Marxists, including Raúl Castro, Che Guevara, Ramiro Valdez, and Camila Cienfuegos. This faction worked behind the scenes to shape Cuba's future. Meeting under the banner of the Bureau for Revolutionary Planning and Coordination, they guided Cuba toward a communist, Soviet-aligned state. Throughout 1959, Raul, Che, and their allies steadily replaced moderate government, labor, and security positions with communists. They did this in full view of Castro, typically with the new Caudillo's approval, and at times even on his orders. Castro knew he couldn't rule on his own. He needed Che, Raul, and their Marxist ilk. But as the Marxists positioned themselves to shape Cuba's future, they knew they also had to settle accounts with the past. Batista's corrupt regime had been propped up by the services of state-sanctioned torturers and murderers. Now, the people demanded vengeance. Not long after the victory, Raul Castro ordered the summary execution of about 70 prisoners without trial. They were killed by soldiers and dumped in a grave dug by a bulldozer. But such outbursts of violence weren't the norm. In fact, early on, Fidel Castro kept his hands clean. He allowed trials to proceed without his interference, even if they didn't go his way. Foreign correspondent Tad Schultz observed that, unlike the situations following the communist revolutions in Russia and China, Cuba did not see state-directed mass killings. For the most part, 
Only those who were sentenced to death were killed, usually at a large 18th-century fortress nicknamed La Cabana. The executions were overseen by Che and Raoul. The past had to be put in the past. But the new government wanted to do a lot more than just get revenge. During 1959 alone, Castro's administration passed over 1,500 decrees, laws, and edicts, reduced rent on low-income families, decreased utility costs, an increase in wages, and an end to racial discrimination. In the years to follow, more reforms would see all Cuban citizens granted access to free health care. A literacy campaign greatly improved the education levels of ordinary Cubans. Of course, the new regime wasn't without its own ineptitude. For example, the implementation of land reform was dangerously chaotic. Victorious rebels and laborers took the law into their own hands, illegally imprisoning landowners and shooting their cattle for fun. Meanwhile, middle-class Cubans, initially supportive of Castro, were shocked and dismayed when their small businesses were confiscated. Many ordinary, hard-working Cubans were ruined. Still, despite antagonizing the landlords and the middle class, Castro's economic policies seemed to be working, for now. Unemployment fell. The poor had more money to buy food. However, since the actual GDP wasn't rising and productivity was in decline, the country was quickly running out of money. As the dizzying high of victory wore off and Cuba began its economic slide backwards, opposition forces started to grumble. In October 1959, Huber Matos, a military commander and hero of the revolution, attempted to resign. He was sickened by Raul's takeover of the military and communist influence in the army. Castro, fearing a conspiracy, ordered Matos and 40 other officers arrested. Raul advocated having Matos executed. Instead, Castro subjected the commander to a show trial and had him sentenced to 20 years in prison. Then he made military loyalty a top priority. This was a coldly practical move. In Cuba, armed coups had always been a threat. Castro refused to join the club. So he consolidated the armed forces, and then he created paramilitary militias called Committees for the Defense of the Revolution. They became the eyes and ears of the revolution, which he was increasingly anxious about protecting. Castro may not have lusted for power for power's sake, but like most revolutionaries, he believed he was the only one who could save Cuba. In order to realize his ambitions for the fledgling nation, he had to ensure he remained in control, no matter the cost. As time went on, it became more and more dangerous to criticize the government, particularly the influence of communism. Castro warned that no one could be neutral. You either supported the revolution or you were a traitor. Media companies were shut down or confiscated until only mouthpieces for the regime remained. Anything that threatened Castro's vision for his country had to go. Many Cubans fled to the United States, particularly Florida, where they watched what was happening to their country with dismay. They soon clamored for another revolution to topple the new Caudillo. These exiles found a receptive audience in Washington. 
American policymakers found it difficult to let go of their influence over Cuba. The small island nation had danced to the Yankees' tune for decades. Simply accepting that the situation had changed was never going to be an easy pill to swallow. Especially considering that the U.S. was in a cold war with the Soviet Union. Though Castro had initially proclaimed his willingness to work with the United States, his reforms had the stink of communism about them. The thought of a Marxist-Leninist stronghold so close to U.S. soil was an existential nightmare. Thus, the CIA started working hand-in-hand with Cuban exiles in America. They funded anti-Castro groups and even flew small planes over Cuba to drop firebombs on sugar fields and factories. Castro responded by cracking down even harder on opposition at home. Increasingly, he felt himself under siege. And he wasn't wrong. President Eisenhower was always wary of Castro's takeover. And after a year, he had seen enough. In March 1960, he greenlit plans for an invasion of Cuba to overthrow Castro. Soon, the CIA was training a small army of Cuban exiles. And for the landing site, they chose the Bahia de Cochinos, the Bay of Pigs. Crucial to the invasion's success was the assassination of Fidel Castro. So the CIA put together many outlandish attempts to kill Castro before or even during the invasion. Two attempts involved poisoning Castro's favorite vices, cigars, and milkshakes. Another was contaminating Castro's diving suit with tuberculosis germs. And in one particularly exciting plan, The CIA thought to blow up Castro with a bazooka during a boxing match. Despite their creativity, all these assassination attempts were total failures. Castro was well aware that the U.S. was trying to kill him, and he also knew about the plan to invade Cuba long before it happened. At least that something was about to happen, so he had some time to figure it out. Because back in the United States, invasion plans were being met with unease. In the fall of 1960, Vice President Richard Nixon, one of the biggest proponents of the invasion, lost the election to John F. Kennedy. When the plans fell on Kennedy's desk, the newly inaugurated president had reservations. Ironically, during his campaign, Kennedy hammered Eisenhower and Vice President Nixon for not standing up to Castro and failing to support Cuban exiles. He also railed against them for failing to stop the spread of communism in general. Washington's fears weren't unfounded. Cuba was growing closer to the Soviet Union. In part, Castro was motivated by the obstinacy of the United States in refusing a reconciliation. Eisenhower's embargo didn't help. Equally as important was the influence of Raul Castro and Che Guevara. Throughout 1960, Cuban policy was quickly looking more and more Marxist-Leninist. Large industries, banks, and businesses were nationalized, and trade deals were made with the Soviet Union and China. Capitalism was being hacked away by a machete's blade, and now it was up to Kennedy to deal with. Wanting to appear tough on communism and probably hoping to accomplish something in his nascent administration, Kennedy finally allowed the invasion plans to proceed. On April 15, 1961, American bombers disguised as Cuban military aircraft attacked Cuban airbases to soften them up before the invasion. 
The press immediately recognized them as U.S. bombers because they had metal noses. Cuban B-26s used plexiglass. Despite the failed ruse, the invasion went forward. On April 17, 1961, 1,511 men, commanded by CIA agents William Robertson and Grayston Lynch, landed on the Bay of Pigs and were spotted almost immediately by local militias. The militias notified the military, and Castro sent heavily armed units to hold the invaders back. Castro's army suffered heavy losses attempting to dislodge the beachhead. But the invaders were isolated and undersupplied. By April 19th, they ran out of ammunition and surrendered. Several members of the invading force had been part of Batista's regime. Five were executed and nine were given 30-year prison sentences. But rather than execute the rest, Castro went with a more humiliating punishment. Castro paraded them on television, creating a spectacle. He offered to return the prisoners to the U.S. in exchange for 500 tractors. Eventually, they were returned for medical supplies. The Bay of Pigs invasion was an embarrassing farce and an unequivocal disaster. The CIA and Cuban exiles chastised Kennedy for not sending in the U.S. military to help. In all likelihood, Kennedy's inaction was out of fear of Soviet retaliation. As it was, the Bay of Pigs invasion was doomed from the start. It was predicated on the mistaken belief that Castro's regime was weak and only needed a nudge to collapse. The CIA had been woefully misinformed. As for Castro, he came out of the Bay of Pigs invasion not only unscathed, but greatly strengthened. The CIA and American government had inadvertently injected the Castro regime with steroids. By besting the American Goliath, Castro's prestige and power were enhanced. He became even more of a legendary hero. Now, no one could touch him. Unfortunately, this wouldn't be the last time Fidel Castro tangoed with the United States. And the next time Castro dared the American superpower, his gamble would bring the world to the brink of nuclear annihilation. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll chronicle how Fidel Castro maintained his grip on Cuba for nearly 50 years, survived the fall of the Soviet Union, and managed to keep the world's strongest nation at bay. Among the many sources we used, we found Fidel Castro, a biography by Volker Skierka, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>